play ball like a girl! Aren't you a girl? Gee, good eye. I'm a girl. That doesn't mean I have to wear a skirt. It's not a girl thing. It's not a boy thing. It's a skills thing. When I first started playing tennis, women weren't really encouraged to play sports, let alone excel in sports. Just want to play ball. Welcome to Ball Like a Girl. And here's your host, Olivia Stacy. Hey everyone, welcome into a new episode of Ball Like a Girl presented by Heavy.com. We're really happy to have you here. If this is your first time listening, every week we have a conversation with an influential woman in the sports industry. And today I'm really excited to have National Pro Fast Pitch Commissioner Sherry Kempf joining us. Now, I had the pleasure of meeting Sherry when I was sidelining an NPF game this summer. And she is someone who I had always heard about because she's someone who is so highly respected in softball and professional women's sports. She's been a leading figure in the development of women's softball for her entire career. As a player, she helped Team USA earn a gold medal in the 1992 World Cup in Beijing. As an instructor, she founded the largest women's fast-pitch training facility. And on the media side, she's a well-established TV analyst for college and professional softball. She's worked with ESPN, Fox Sports, and MLB Network, just to name a few. She's been a proponent of advancing the growth of softball for decades and really is a champion for all women's sports. So in this interview, we delve into a variety of topics surrounding the MPF and beyond, including the lack of media coverage surrounding women's team sports, how she helped to secure the largest TV deal in the history of professional softball, and what it takes to be a woman in sports management. Take a listen. Well, Sherry, thanks so much for joining me today. Um, you know, the last time I saw you was this summer when I was sidelining the USA Pride versus Beijing game over at Space Coast Stadium. And it was such an interesting series for me to cover because it really showcased the global growth of not just the MPF, but the game itself. And you were a large part of that process. And, you know, Olivia, I'm glad that you brought that up because I just got back from our national convention and where I spoke on the league and, and the status and all of that. And that's that was one of my highlights is that uh, just our involvement globally and really what changed last year in the league. So that's really the first time in the history of a U.S. sports league that a team has been fully involved from outside the contiguous U.S., so it, it, was a, it was a big move. And further, for our sport, you have uh, these countries that really wax and wane based on whether our sport is in the Olympics or not. So we've been out of the Olympics since 2008. And so many of these teams, these international teams that were really steeped in success and tradition in this sport have suffered badly. So you you saw you you may have actually seen Beijing win one of the three games they won all season long. So and if you go back to 1996 in the first Olympic Games in Atlanta, it was Beijing, it was China that was in the finals versus the United States. So they're really a shadow of their former selves, and I think it's uh, for them to be able to be involved in this league and this level of competition will only improve their overall 
abilities on their national team, and that will definitely have a trickle-down effect on youth. Absolutely. I remember that was a point that all of the coaches made um, about about their experience playing against Beijing was just how excited they were for the growth of the game and how that would affect um, you know all of the teams in the NPF to help spread awareness of the sport uh, globally. So as you mentioned, softball will return to the Olympics in 2020. Um, I know that you're very excited about that decision, but how will that affect the NPF? You know, I am excited about it because the whole uh, commentary around our sport adjusts when it is in the Olympics. So that's a unique experience, and it is uh, notoriety and attention at a worldwide level that I think you don't get in any anything else, any other type of competition. So I think it's important for us to be there, and our, our sport has taken great strides uh, during the time when it was in the Olympics. It was in uh, four Olympic Games uh, from 96 through, through 2008. Um, but it is a big difference maker. It is something from the NPF standpoint, really, the way that it affects us. It's just in scheduling that you're going to have these world competitions and during the Olympic year, the Olympic competition that you need to be cognizant of. And specifically, if we have these international teams as well, that we need to be able to allow them uh, to participate in whatever world competition it is that year. And you know what? In a perfect world, you, you may just love to put your head down and, and trudge through a season just like you want to do it. Um, but in reality, it's not really that big of a deal for us to work around these competitions as long as we know when they are and what they are. And how, how has that process been working with USA Softball and the NPF? Because I know there's been some reports that uh, there's some tension over that. with NPF players, and they really said at that time, it's us or them. If you're playing in the NPF, you're not going to be invited to tryouts. You're not going to be involved with the USA team. And so at this point, you have to choose. Now, that was when Jenny Finch, Kat Osterman, Natasha Watley, Caitlin Lowe, Kelly Crutchman, and, and there were about eight players that were uh, directly affected and a couple more on the perimeter that were on the national team. Those players unanimously chose the league. Um, just sort of with the rationale being that, uh, you know, that, again, the sport was waxing and waning in Olympic competition, but if you could establish a consistent and strong and healthy professional level, that is when the sport would really grow. So you saw folks like uh, Monica Abbott, Jess Mendoza were also in that that group of players and those uh you know really take a strong statement and so from 2010 on there's been some i would say definitely adversity uh usa has had its uh struggles in in bringing home gold medals and whatever the competition was um just due to the fact that they weren't always putting the most experienced and best foot forward but I think that's changing. Um, this last time, the, the tryout is actually coming up in January, that over half the invitees were from the NPF. 
and actually almost the entire other half are college players. So I think there's only five or six players that are not in college and are not in the NPF. So um, I think that is a that was a big step forward from USA Softball. Um, I, I just said this uh, when I spoke at our convention as well, and that is there's still some work to do. You know, that was probably the easiest step forward. So it's important for us to know from an NPF standpoint, uh, you know, when they want those players. And it's important, I think, for them to have some courtesy and not destroy the, the league, not pull out 20 or 30 players out of league competition for two and a half or maybe the entire two and a half months or maybe the entire season altogether. So we still need to work together. Uh, in, in no other sport does the professional level, uh, is that torn apart from Olympic competition. And we need to be uh, no different than that. And now, Sherry, you've been a leading figure in the development of women's softball throughout your career, and you've seen it from a lot of different angles and in a lot of different roles. As an athlete, you've been an instructor, a broadcast analyst, and now, of course, NPF commissioner. But I want to start um, you know, with, with your beginning. When were you first introduced to softball? When I was nine. So when I was nine, there was a division of um, – it was a, a division of Little League. It wasn't truly Little League. Um, but my brother was playing. My brother's three and a half years older than me, and I was always sort of tailing him and wanting to do everything he was doing. And so uh, at a younger age, I was just chasing foul balls. But when I was nine, there was a Little League that popped up for girls, and I was elated. So that's when I first started playing. And when did it go from a recreational activity to something that you thought, hey, I'm really good at this. I can pursue this seriously. Uh, immediately, really, immediately, because I had played so much just in the yard and in the house, probably, if the truth <laughs> be told. And just, you know, throwing things uh, as far as, you know, playing stick and ball type activities or dodgeball or whatever it might be, playing at a young age. And so, you know, I knew that I wanted to play even before the uh, opportunity was there. And when your playing days were over, you remained invested in the sport, as we know, um, but you founded Club K, the world's largest training facility for women's fast pitch softball. That is a huge accomplishment. What inspired you to open a facility of that magnitude? Well, initially it wasn't that magnitude. So what I was trying to do was uh, I played – I finished my career in a division that really doesn't exist anymore. It was called Women's Majors. So it was an amateur division, but it was all the top players. It was like um, at the very top, it, it would be comparable to NPF competition. But there were, it, it went so much deeper in uh, the amount of teams because it was, as I said, it was, a, it was the women's division. It was amateur. But uh, I was trying to continue to play. I was playing for a team out of Connecticut called the Ray Bestis Breakettes. And I wanted to keep playing. I needed something to be flexible and allow me to, to keep taking 
three months off during the summer to, to go uh, play softball. And so uh, a teammate of mine, uh, that was the, a former team that I was on in St. Louis, said, hey, I'm, you know, I'm teaching lessons. And it sounds funny um, now because so many people teach. But back then, it was like, really? Right. You know, you're teaching pitching? And so she kind of told me a little bit about how she put, you know, three or four comparable athletes in a class, and she told me a little bit of the outline, and so I sent out a hundred letters to, to people in Nashville that were in the softball community, and I would, I didn't have a building at first, uh, and as you mentioned, we ended up with 70,000 square feet, um, wow. and 35,000 dedicated specifically to the sport of softball, so we ended up, uh, you know, very big, but at, when I first started, I would go if someone had if there were ten players, I would go. So I would I went to Paris, Tennessee, went to Dover, Tennessee, Springfield, Tennessee. You know anywhere uh, that the, that there was a collection of ten players, and the the business just really uh, built and grew from that. And you know then it ended up with multiple instructors and and the facilities. I, we went through uh, five facilities every time growing. I started out with five thousand square feet in a strip mall, and the last building, the seventy thousand square foot building, we built ourselves. So uh, you know it's uh, it was um, it was something that I really loved to do, and it was something that uh, I was fortunate enough to be around some really intelligent people in terms of human movement and what makes you know balls move and and how you gain speed and things like that and um and i was able to to relay that successfully uh, sort of on on mass uh, to young people which was a point of pride for me really you were a lead instructor there for 15 years. You've written a book. You've been a broadcast softball analyst. And since 2007, as we know, you've held the role of NPF commissioner. You've worked tirelessly to grow this game from so many angles, as I mentioned earlier. But an important aspect for you was to increase media exposure. And you helped the NPF secure the largest television deal in the history of professional softball. Can you take us through what that deal entailed and, and how you approached that process? Well, I think we're still in the process, really. You know, we were with CBS Sports, so we started with our championship being televised in 2011, and we were on ESPN2 with our championship, and that was in 11 and 12, and in 2013, ESPN gave us six windows, so two were championship and four were regular season, and then we just needed a bigger presence. You know, we're a small league, not a lot of people knew about us, so we really broadened uh, our horizons in terms of who we were looking at, so we started talking to other people at that time NBC Sports had uh, really uh, launched and CBS Sports had launched. So we, we talked to both of those groups. Uh, we talked to Fox One and it ended up that CBS Sports offered us a, a lot of opportunities. Uh, they, at the time they offered us 30 windows. That first year we ended up taking 17 of those is what we could afford. But 
Um, and we grew to, uh, and we ended up three years later, we put on, uh, we delivered 25 events to CBS Sports. So it was a broad-based relationship with a lot of exposure time. We were on prime time, typically on Mondays and Tuesdays. Um, So that, that really worked out. But I think, you know, I would tell you that the last two years we've been predominantly uh, digital with the, with the majority of our content and launching NPF TV as a platform where it's uh, uh, really a, a dedicated platform and consistent platform where all of our, uh, all of our programming uh, existed, lived, and still does. But, you know, I'm still a firm believer. I know we're in the digital age. I'm still a firm believer in linear television and would love to to get back there. It's just a a huge, a huge cost difference in producing for a digital platform based uh, as opposed to a linear. Aside from the cost of it, um, you know, because women's team sports have long been overlooked in media coverage, what other kind of pushback did you experience when approaching television networks, major national networks, about uh, putting women's softball on primetime television? Well, here's the thing. You know, the, the frustrating part about it is that softball is wildly successful. So I'm not pitching something that doesn't have data to back it up. The data behind college softball is tremendously impressive puts college softball championship the women's college world series sometimes based on whatever year you're looking at has been as high as the third highest rated championship only behind football and men's basketball it it typically outrates uh, a lot of the regular day-to-day programming, whether that's MLB, NHL, uh, NCAA baseball, whatever. So softball has this proven track record. That's the frustrating part. But the other part, you, you hit it on the head. There is not a big presence specifically for women's team sports on television. So you have to have someone who has vision and who has guts to say, you know, we're, we're going to do this. You know, this is something that's important, and this is something that does well, and we're going to go both feet in, and we're going to carry this on a large scale, and we're going to promote it, and we're going to support it. And I think anyone that does that, again, you can, you can reference back to college softball, it, you have a high potential for success. But it is new, and it is different, and it is women, and it just hasn't been done yet. So it's going to take a unique individual to say we're in. And do you feel that you've been that individual in that conversation? Uh, No, I think I am the individual that 100% believes in it and scratches my head to say, why is this so hard to see? You know, I often point back to uh, Major League Baseball. There was just one guy named Branch Rickey that there was just one guy in all of Major League Baseball that said, I think black men should be in with us, and I think they can compete, and I think this will work. And he was criticized for that. 
He's the guy who signed Jackie Robinson. He was highly criticized. He was, uh, you know, he, he met with a combative audience that said, what in the world is happening here? What are you doing? So when you look back at that, history kind of tells us that anything new and different, how absurd does that seem right now? Right, that black right. men were not among the ranks of Major League Baseball players. But at that time, it hadn't been done. And it took a unique individual and a strong individual to not only make the decision, but to stand behind it. So I think we're at the same place. I, I say all the time, every day, what I learn, what's rare in, in business is vision and guts, the combination of those two. And women need somebody that, that has that. So I would tell you, I 100% believe in it. I scratch my head that, that it's so hard for other people to see, but, but for us to be on large scale, for us to go back to that type of a 25-game delivery with CBS, we had an amazing deal. If there was any, any corporate America partnership that would have held hands with us and said, hey, this is a heck of a thing, we can get in at a fraction of the cost. We can own these 25 games. We can have all of our uh, advertising all over this thing, and it will give us a great return on our investment. If somebody had just stepped forward and said that, uh, you know, there's no, we, would, we would be on right now. And as you mentioned, it's not just in softball. This is an issue with all of women's team sports. Um, and have you had conversations with other leaders in women's professional teams about these issues? Yes. So it's a conversation that I have all the time. And it's amazing that so many people, I, I think that we are uh, increasing the awareness, but so many people don't realize it until you say it. And then they're like, oh, yeah, that's right. There are women's professional team sport options available. So, you know, I think everyone knows it. Um, last year, A&E took a very uh, aggressive position with women's soccer. So they went out and uh, went to the Women's Soccer League, and they ended up taking an equity position at the end of the day. They took an equity position in the league. They purchased inventory. They are airing the soccer league. They're producing those games. They're using all of their assets and public relations, broadcasting, everything to promote that league and i think that is that was an aggressive position a brave position to take and make that move now you know i i would certainly uh, it's an enviable deal it's something that's you know very attractive uh and you know something that that we would love to uh type of relationship that we would love to have at the end of the day as well well, and I want to ask you, do you think part of the problem with having increased media exposure and coverage is misconception about the sport? And if so, I, I'm curious to know what you think is one of the biggest misconceptions that people have about women's softball. I think that when something is not in front of you, a lot of people don't drill down on it. So what's easy? What's easy is that there are what, 30 college football bowl games 
So you you take a look this year at those college football bowl games that come on that are on off prime, and maybe they have a whole corporate sponsor. I will assure you that that corporate sponsor for those low-level college football bowl games, I will assure you that I could give them 25 games for what they're paying for that one football bowl game with very few people in the stands and airing at an off time on television and not getting a lot of exposure. So why do they choose that? Why do they choose number 30 or number 50 or whatever it is in the college football bowl games? Because it's in front of them. Because it's something that everyone else is doing. It's keeping up with the Joneses. Our competitors have a college football bowl game. Let's go get a college football bowl game. And no one's really, I don't think, sitting down and saying, hang on a second. We can get 25 softball games that are proven to rate well, that are proven to have great exposure and a good audience and a committed, dedicated audience. We could get that. And get so much more delivery, so much more return, um, and, and let's give this a whirl. Again, that's if you're hanging around the water cooler talking with your, uh, you know, your your fellow, your peers, uh, that maybe that's a hard thing to say. You know what? We're not going to do a bowl game this year. We're gonna we're gonna do softball. I think people say what because mm-hmm. it's not in front of them. And so we're not the cool kids. So I think that's why you see, you know, from where I sit, a lot of decisions that are head scratchers that just completely don't make sense because they're doing what's popular. Right. And you, you make you make a good point. You know, that's an interesting statement that you said we're not the cool kids. And I, I think um, – you know, you're you're always searching for ways to become more relevant and more credible. Um, and in 2016, we saw the MPF have a lot of national attention when pitcher Monica Abbott was signed to a monumental six-year contract, and it was worth $1 million. That marked the first seven-figure deal involving a women's professional team sport athlete. Do you think that deal helped to give the NPF more cred? For a blink, it did. I think a lot of people right now that we're talking to, unless I say it, they have no idea that um, that Monica Abbott signed a million-dollar deal. So I think it did uh, make a splash at the moment that it happened, and Monica made some appearances and and, t- and spoke. And Monica is a great representative for our sport and for our league. Um, so she she definitely had some opportunities to to speak at that moment, but. Uh, I think that from a strategic standpoint, we have to we have to make sure that we continue to elevate the league and that we're doing things. Um, you know, I, again, I think that's something that makes a statement. But I think at the end of the day, we still have every other player in this league besides Monica that is not making a living yet in this sport, in this professional platform. So I think that's our uh, that's that's the call right there is to to sort of figure that out. And, you know, what people what people don't if you're not in this business, you don't understand that 
professional players, when you look at big time, Major League Baseball, the NBA, NFL, NHL, all of those guys that are that are making big, big money, they're not making that on ticket sales. They're making that on partnerships. The, the, the people that are uh, on the same team with Major League Baseball, the partners, the sponsors, the, that's where the big money comes in. The media rights deal, that's where the big money comes in. So that is for us uh, the challenge, and that's what makes a difference. And I, I guess what we have to continue to do is seek out those opportunities, and we have to be ready. When, when, when we get our chance, we need to be ready, and we need to, to deliver a, a fantastic product. So much progress has been made since the league's inception. What do you see happening over the course of the next 10 years? What do you hope happens for the NPF? Well, I think the league should be a 20-team league. I think that's um, just with experience, what you see in college softball, in college softball, if the 20th ranked team on any given day knocks off the, the number one team, every, it'll get everyone's attention, but it's not a shocker. It's not an oh my gosh, because it's that the, the depth of competitiveness is, exists, uh, probably even b- beyond 20 teams. But when you combine that with the fact that we now have international inclusion of teams and players, and I think you'll continue to see that, I think that realistically, uh, very realistically, we should be a 20-team league. Now, when you're going to start to see more people want to be involved is when owners are actually making money. So it's sort of that whole cart and horse thing. Again, you're just not going to recover. What a lot of people don't realize is these teams cost somewhere, depending on some some big numbers, such as your facility and your payroll total and some things like that, uh, the, the teams cost somewhere between four hundred and fifty and $700,000 a year to operate. So that's significant. And even if those, even if the owners were consistently breaking even and on the brink of profit, I think you see a lot of people throw their hat in the ring. Um, I don't think that you're going to see that consistency until you see a bigger partnership from corporations and those can be regional for teams and they can be national and now really international for the league itself exactly and we're we're seeing more women in leadership positions in sports such as yourself and this may be a loaded question but what do you feel it takes to be a woman who's a leader in sports in a role in sports management well i think that you are definitely in uh a male dominated profession so there's that to start out with uh and i think uh so so i think in in sports management in general i think there's that and i think if you can if you're comfortable in that environment i have always been comfortable i grew up with an older brother i grew up you know playing sports with boys so so that is probably where i'm most comfortable quite honestly but i think if you can operate in that space that hurdle goes away um and and i think that a lot of men quite frankly are very helpful and supportive uh of i I will tell you the sport of softball 
specifically. Uh, there's a there's a lot of men that are just over the moon with the with the sport, the entertainment value from it. So um, I, I don't think that's um, such a big deal. But I think just women in leadership. You know, I think that I think you're often um, questioned in any leadership role. I think that women um, are are questioned a bit more, and a lot of times, even specifically from other women. Um, so I, I think that you you know you definitely have to be able to survive uh, that, and you have to realize that you know a decision maker is a target. And it's easy to second guess, and it's easy for for folks to uh, you know say how they would do it, and and that may be right, and it may be very wrong, but you just you know it's it's like anything. I think that you have to be be able to tolerate that and understand, have confidence in yourself and, and your abilities wherever you are. I don't care if uh, you know you're in a completely different. Uh, realm than the sports entertainment business, but I think you know you're you're going to have to be able to roll with the pin, with the punches and understand that you're not going to always be right, but uh, you know continue to lead. And speaking of women who have been movers and shakers in the sports industry, we saw a a former NPF player, Jessica Mendoza, and you mentioned her earlier, uh, become the first MLB analyst for ESPN. Uh, that was a monumental move in the sports industry. Can you talk about how proud you were to see her take that position and what you think that says overall about women in broadcasting? Well, tell you that I think uh, I think that John Skipper the uh, CEO of ESPN I think that was a brave move I think he made the move and I think he did exactly what we just talked about I think he accepted the backlash uh, it was certainly a risky move for him to do to be a first ever to put Jess in that position but I don't think that we will ever all truly appreciate we'll have to wait for the movie but i don't think we'll ever truly appreciate what she's been through if you even glanced at twitter when she came out she was an easy target and you know how aggressive people get uh, on the social media platforms and it was just fun uh it seemed like it was fun entertainment for a long time for people to be critical of jess and it wasn't it had nothing to do with her abilities she obviously uh, can talk about baseball she is obviously entertaining people enjoy now that the dust has settled you can see how many people enjoy her joy uh, in covering sports and specifically baseball but i will tell you i it, it, there's no way it could have been easy there's no way. It's probably still not. Again, you know, there is so much tradition in baseball. And there is, so, you know, even men who veer from that traditional baseball mindset are, are criticized and sometimes really uh, hung out in, in, in those positions. So certainly a woman in that world, um, I, I, I there's no possible way that every day is uh, she skates through every day and doesn't, uh, you know, at times feel maybe out of place and, and uh, overly criticized. But Jess is an optimist. She, she, you know, she played the game that way. And, uh, and I think she has a lot of confidence. She failed at the game at times. She'll be the first one to tell you. 
And uh, I think she learned a lot, you know, from just being an athlete at a high level. And I think she's transferred all that to her career as a broadcaster. Well, Sherry, uh, my last question for you before we wrap up. You've coached, you've led uh, for many years. You're, you're still leading <laughs> as NPF commissioner. So what advice would you give to a woman who wants to be involved in some capacity in the sports industry? I would tell anybody, anytime, uh, that wants, that knows, that has a target, to immerse yourself in it, one way, one way or the other. Uh, I, I can tell you that when I uh, owned the largest training facility in the world, I cleaned the bathrooms, and that wasn't a glamorous job. And I picked trash up out of the parking lot. And I can tell you that. It, it, you can take it all the way to broadcasting. You know, I, I did games for nothing. I did games that cost me money to do them so that I could get experience on the air. And in the NPF, I certainly, a lot of times, I'm the odd man out in the room. I'm the, uh, you know, it's not, you're in a, I say as a joke, a lot of times it's sort of uphill backwards in a snowstorm often. So I, but you have to, you know, be committed. You have to put your head down. You have to believe in what you're doing. But a lot of times, I think especially, I see it in broadcasting a lot, people want to go from college student in broadcasting to Holly Rowe. And it just, it, that's just not realistic. So, you know, be the runner on a crew. You know, being a person that's going to get a Coke or pulling cable or whatever, don't be afraid to immerse yourself because that's how you learn. A big thanks to Commissioner Kemp for joining us and sharing her insight. And if you missed last week, our episode featured Laura Rutledge, who is the host of SEC Nation on SEC Network and a sideline reporter for ESPN. She offered a very interesting account into the demands of her job, her rise to success, the relationship she's formed at ESPN, and hit on a lot of different topics, including how she handles criticism and sometimes bullies on social media. I highly recommend taking a listen to it. And while you're at it, make sure you subscribe to Ball Like a Girl on iTunes so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. We have a lot of great guests lined up for the next few weeks. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the podcast as well. So leave us a review on iTunes and say hi on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I can't tell you how much I enjoy the feedback from all of you, and we hope to hear more of it, so don't be a stranger. But with that being said, that wraps up this episode. Thanks for listening to Ball Like a Girl, presented by Heavy.com, and have a great week.